podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hi listeners, I'm Mo Chatra and welcome to another episode of Money Talks right here on Anfield Index. And uh, yeah, we um, bring this to you as we shut yet another transfer window. Um, a transfer window which saw Liverpool sign no fewer than four midfielders and um, spent more money than we have for quite some time. Um, that said, you know, there was a lot of discussion, debate, as is usually the case in terms of whether we spent enough. Um, and uh, that debate will rage, I'm sure, right through to the next transfer window and all the way through it, uh, which is still, you know, best part of four months away. Um, but to uh, reflect on um, Liverpool's um, spending and its uh, approach to doing business when it came to recruitment over the summer and to look at um, topics more broadly linked to that. Um, I'm delighted to welcome on to Money Talks um, for a debut appearance, Nizami. How are you doing, Nizami? Very well, thank you. Thanks for the invite, Mo. No, delighted to have you on. Um, for those that are unaware, um, Nizami is part of our Anfield Index uh, Discord community, very active within it. Um, and um, you know, make make some very salient points around um, matters around the finance and ownership and whatnot. So, um, yeah, really um, glad to have you on, and uh, you know, very uh, much looking forward to discussing uh, all the agenda items that I shared with you uh, well in advance of this podcast. Well, by well in advance, I'm talking about an hour or so, <laughs> as is usually the case. But um, yeah, so Nizami, for those of you, uh, our listeners who are unfamiliar with you, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, very briefly, uh, I guess I've been in the financial sector. I've worked in the financial sector for about 20 years now um, across investment banking and strategy consulting. Um, so, so essentially, I think I look at, I look, I've basically spent the last 20 years looking at numbers. Uh, and so the FSG kind of model, I work a lot with hedge funds or have over the car, over the last five to 10 years worked a lot with hedge funds. So I think it's quite, it's always been an interesting, uh, to analyze their motives and what they're trying to do because it kind of resonates with a lot of my clients. Um, um, and I guess, um, associates, um, okay. Currently, I I look at uh, capital strategy for an uh, investment bank. So again, it's just optimization of capital and how that works, and future revenue uh, and valuation add um, positive valuation in- improvements. And so again, um, it's very interesting to kind of stand back at times to kind of have a look at look at li- Liverpool not as a fan but as a as a business and see how how um, 
strategic decisions are being made and whether you align with the ownership or not. And I think that's where we've had various um, discussions regarding um, our views on those things. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, certainly from, you know, your your uh, experiences in, in terms of your professional career and being able to bring perspectives linked to that um, within the Discord community, I think, I think certainly been really um refreshing and interesting um so that's why i'm you know really glad to have you on here but uh let, let's um start with um what i raised earlier on which was um the fact that we have come to the end of another transfer window uh, a window in which liverpool signed um no no fewer than four uh midfielders in uh alice alexis mcallister dominic shabaslai um, with Horendo from Stuttgart and then finally um, on deadline day Ryan Gravenberch from Bayern Munich um, so spent um, in the region of about uh, just over £150 million which is um, the biggest outlay um, within a single transfer window since the summer of 2018 uh, which was quite a pivotal window for the club when obviously um, Fabinho Allison. um was signed. Naby Keita, though he uh, agreed a contract a year before, finally arrived at Liverpool in that summer. Um, and then um, one of my favourites in recent years, um, Jordan Shakiri arrived as well. And had it not been for one or two issues with, uh, you know, r- rumoured to be agents um, holding up the club at the eleventh hour, Nabil Fakir would have joined as well. Um, but nonetheless, he didn't, and Liverpool still went on to win the Champions League and then the Premier League a season later. Um, but Liverpool clearly following a disappointing 22-23 season needed to address its midfield. And um, that's where the Saudis came to the rescue to an extent in that um, they were happy to uh, part with significant amounts of cash to prize away uh, Fabinho and Jordan Henderson. And that was on top of um, Naby Keita, Jimmy Milner, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, all leaving on a free. And, and let's not forget, of course, um, the massive contribution um, by one Arthur Mello last season, a grand banking 13 minutes um, on loan uh, for millions of pounds um, that we had to pay to Juve, um, which we will brush aside for, for, for the time being. Time is of the essence. So um, we, we have clearly looked to address our midfield. Uh, many fans were a bit disappointed um, that we did nothing on the defensive side. Um, but overall, um, Nizami, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Liverpool's activities over the summer transfer window? I'm torn, actually, in terms of that. Um, as a fan, I think it's, I think it's disappointing to a certain extent. And again, I think it's all fine and well us looking back on it retrospectively over the, in two years and say, oh, this was a great window. But I think actually we we have to take a snapshot um, at close of play on the last year of the of the previous season and see what would we have been happy with. And I think I was pretty disappointed with it all in um, fundamentally because I think. It was probably the first time under the Klopp regime where I think there are definitive gaps in the first team. Whereas I think previously, um, and previously there there were gaps in the squad, um, and sometimes quite huge gaps in the squad. But where you could identify, it was very difficult to identify specific positions in the first team where you thought, actually, you know what, the player playing here 
is very, very uh, weak. And I guess mm. the way I look at this transfer window is we've got, and, I, and interestingly enough, I think Klopp literally made those statements um, when he when he welcomed Endo to the to the club in that in in this um, in the clip that was shared on uh, by Liverpool um, themselves, where we have a very top heavy team uh, team squad. We have a huge gap in defensive midfield, and given that last year we had a, I mean, it was, I think everybody and their dog was stressing how easy it was to run through Liverpool because of the absence of a holding defensive midfielder um, in conjunction with the stru- well structural issues. I think, oh. I think the fact that we never got somebody a premium defensive midfielder, um, I think, I, I think it's it's pretty negligent to be completely frank. Um, oh. And I think in conjunction with that, obviously we know the, we, we've had, uh, we've been burnt before regarding the defense. You know, we have potentially three center backs, sorry, four center backs. Um, and given we play three center backs, we, we play a, a back three in essence. Um, I think, and also if you factor in their, um, their injury histories, I think it's um yeah I think it's pretty problematic to be honest I think we we're already seeing this now we've got our third and fourth choice center back starting the last game and you know they played perfectly well very very well I would, I'd 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 say but ostensibly I guess if I asked you the question on the first day of the season by the fourth game Virgil van Dijk and Canate would not be in the first first team I think we'd all be having kittens so I think I think yeah for me that's the disappointment it's that they had a, they had an opportunity um and I don't think it was too difficult because I guess this is we, we can go we can have a conversation later about the aspirational player profiling but I think there's a there, there's a point where pragmatism needs to come into it there's an incremental improvement that can be done rather than a binary zero one this, the perfect player or nobody kind of binary that we seem to be mediating between. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, to me, what they did, they've done very, very well. I think the players that they've identified um, are very, very good. Uh, uh, and I'm really excited to see them progress. And they're all 21, 22. And, you know, the oldest one we've bought is 24. And it looks brilliant. I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, Alexis McAllister, I think, is... An, yeah, I think he's a worldie, to be honest. Um, so I think, and again, going back to this, I th- I think Liverpool's play identification is brilliant. Their ability to their ability to be dynamic in the transfer market is not so good, and I think this has been a critique for a while now um, for the transfer policy. And I think that's where we've come. That's what where sorry, that's the reason why I think we've settled on what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think that, um, again, we appeared to procrastinate over a deal for uh, Romeo Lavia. I mean, I personally didn't feel that that was the right signing for such an important pivotal role, uh, pivotal in more than one sense. And, um, you know, but nonetheless, that was a player that we were after all summer and um, ultimately. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch? And those must-have fan threads. Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. 
from our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Matters transpired, which resulted in him ending up um, in the stands at Chelsea. Um, and he, he can't even make the bench. Um, but uh, I do think, I do think yeah. that Lavia transfer, actually, there was a little bit more... Um, the background to that was slightly nuanced because um, right. I think the idea was almost that they wanted him to um, to serve as an apprentice to Fabinho. So they wanted, so they they thought Fabinho was going to be here for twelve months, and in that time, Lavia becomes the first choice and then and, and, and takes over. And I think the point of that procrastination that you mentioned, I think that that pivot was where they lost Fabinho and. We're looking around for a first, like somebody to step in, and I don't think they were 100 percent sure that Lavia was that player. And I think that mm. was where the the pivot was. But again, again, this going, this is going back to my uh, my critique, uh, like my kind of primary critique. There, I don't think their ability to pivot is that good. I think they identify players, and when they have to do something much more dynamically, something happens out of their control. I think that ability to kind of then reassess and um, review the options. I think that's the bit that Liverpool's transfer policy has, I, I guess, historically not been very good at. It's not just mm. a um, the previous window. I think this is historically, and it's been, I mean, there's lots of articles being written about this. And I guess one would argue, and again, if you're speaking about from a financial perspective, I guess one would argue that this is because the due diligence is such is to such a, high degree that you can't do due diligence from uh, across too many um, investment opportunities, right? So, I mean, you can't jump from one company to another in the finance world because if you've profiled one company, then it takes time for you to then think, well, okay, somebody else has acquired this. Now we need to go back and do that um, do that analysis again on somebody else to see if that fits and that integration work, could work. And I think that's sort of how Liverpool's player profiling works. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and uh, I think that is a source of frustration. That uh, you know, we, and we saw it certainly in evidence last summer as well. That uh, we missed out on our primary midfield targets in too many very early in the transfer window. Um, in I think it was June, and yet um, we we seem to really struggle to then move on from that and identify an alternative. And it almost seemed as if there was no alternative, even though um, th- there have been conflicting reports, some saying that, um, you know, there, there were, um, uh, you know, alternative proposed to the manager and he said no. Others have said uh, he was open. It was actually the ownership who weren't willing to spend, um, you know, the money that uh, would bring in the type of player that Klopp felt was, quote, unquote, the right player. Um and who who knows? Maybe the truth is somewhere in between. But uh, yeah, we we certainly saw that last summer. I've seen it this Very summer, so. and um, have seen it um, on a number of occasions as well. 
Absolutely. We saw it in the Canate window where, or, the, or rather the window before the Canate deal where everybody could see that we were, we, we needed to get defensive cover, but we weren't willing to, well, you know, we weren't willing to um, execute on a deal until they were so sure. I mean, I think, I think that's probably not as accurate as, as that narrative seems to be, because I think we were willing to, or we were about to pull trigger on a, on a deal, but because of the Marseille situation that did not transpire. And I, and, and, and it was clear to car, right? I mean, I think that was, that's now subsequently has been um, common knowledge. I think the problem is that, that yeah, as, as you said, I think we've, we've, it, it seems like, now speaking as a fan, I think this is frustrating because um, it's sort of a repetitive theme and you'd think that the management, the structure, the ownership, the whole of the, I guess, the management in the wider sense would have identified this as a flaw and remediated it. And it seems like we we keep seeing the pattern. And as a fan, it's pretty frustrating because you're thinking there are, you know, if you build a team that's full of or that has a, um, a number of superstars that are now coming to the end of their or the end of the peak period, then what you can't afford to do is basically waste that because fundamentally what might what you might what might be required is then you having to go out and fund another series of superstars, which given our model is problematic. Mm. Mm. And speaking of the model, um so obviously FSG um, to operate to broadly a self-sustaining model. And in layman's terms, it means that the owners do not invest any of their own money, any of their own finances to support the club's activities. Um, and there have been exceptions to that during their 13 years. Um, but um, certainly for the last eight or nine years, um, there, there has been zero investment by the owners into the club, um, whether that's to do with infrastructure um or you know, play recruitment certainly play recruitment and uh therefore the club has to fund um acquisitions through generate uh, revenues generated by the club itself and uh during the window uh, we we did see um the club um sign two players in uh, McAllister and Shobislai um by triggering release clauses. Um, so for you, do you, did you see that as a sign in any way that um, FSG are perhaps looking to operate in a slightly different way in terms of their approach to uh, recruitment, player recruitment, or uh, did it much feel, pretty much feel as much of the same and that was perhaps um, a contributing factor to that uh, frustration that you talked about? I don't think there's a discrete change by triggering release clauses because I think the funding mechanism seems to be loans to to do to do that funding, which I guess in itself might be an indicator that there is a slight change because my and I guess we've had this conversation um, uh, for quite a while now where. This conservative model, or sorry, this model of self-sustainability, I don't think in and of itself is problematic. I actually think it's a really, I think it's a good model for an ownership to have. Where I have disagreed quite fundamentally with this is that everybody seems to think that self-sustainability equates to a 
only one way to function. And I think that's yeah. completely incorrect because just because you have debt doesn't mean you're not self-sustainable. Every company, literally every company in the FTSE 300 has debt because mm. at times that's the best way to finance your operations. It just is because, because of the risk profile of what you're doing. Now, with Liverpool Football Club, you have cash revenues of 600 million coming in, 550 to 600 million. As collateral, that's pretty damn impressive. You could, and I think that's where my, um, that's where my kind of frustration comes from, from the ownership is because, and also, and maybe this is again, one of those, uh, the skew where as somebody who works in the industry, I think those two things are conflated where one, the, the notion that it's self-sustaining equates to the fact that we have no debt. And I think that's completely inaccurate. And I think at times the way that every company that I know of that function that I've ever worked with functions is that when there's a requirement for debt, as long as that debt is serviceable, it is the optimal strategy if it equates to future revenue generation, um, success in, you know, um, advancement in your in your um, in, if you're sorry in your in your product um, placement. So if you're trying to put more things out in the market and you need to take a loan to do that, that's absolutely acceptable as long as that that debt is serviceable. Now, my criticism has been in a historically low interest rate environment that we've had prior to the last 18 months, two years, the self-sustaining model has been equated to the fact that we will not take any debt onto the club that for, for, the, um, for the working capital, right? So when we were, we were told, oh, no, but that's your transfer spend because that, that's the uh that's basically what you what you generate in the year and i think that's the model that i kind of disagree with internally though i don't think that's how they view it i think it's just been a narrative that seems to have built up by people who are slightly oblivious of what a self-sustaining model should look like um and also the actual output of what that has equated to but i but i think that's where my my sort of primary criticism of FSG is, is what they've done is they've picked the most conservative interpretation of a self-sustaining model. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. Um, and, and that's been a big, big source of frustration for me. I, th I think that, uh, you know, you, you just have to look at, um, you know, certain other clubs out there um, who, I mean, people might, think that man united is is a bad example but um and certainly when it comes to recruitment um that their their strategy appears to be very much throwing darts at a board in, in terms of their approach i mean it is very very scattergun and uh you know that they've wasted incredible amounts of money on um you know a vast array of poor signings over the last decade but um one of the things that their ownership despite their many many faults have been, I, I feel better than FSG at is allowing um, the finance people at the club, and it, it is largely finance people, people accountants, in fact, who have been running the club um, over the last number of years, 
what they have allowed is greater freedom and flexibility in terms of how um, that club um, can operate and does operate um, when it comes to player recruitment. And yes, they um, have got significant significant amounts of transfer related debt, um, but you know the, the people who are there are very bright, very very capable, and they they wouldn't enter into um, levels of debt that are uh, unmanageable. And uh, the, the the major downfall is that though they've clearly spent huge amounts of money, all of which are club generated, the owners not only do not put money into the club, they actually take money out of the club through annual dividend payments. Um, they have nonetheless made that money available and allowed the club to have that more uh, the, the kind of freer, more flexible approach to financing. Um, and it, and then the major downfall, as I say, is the fact that um, the actual identification of talent ha- has not been good at all. Um, yes, there have been two or three very strong signings, um, but the majority have been uh, very poor. Had they spent their money more wisely and their recruitment strategy was tighter, um, I dare say they would have picked up one or two more Premier League titles in the last decade. Um but that, that, again, is, I feel, a good example of where, um, in contrast to FSG, um, there is an ownership group that operates to a self-sustaining model, um, frees up more money uh, for the club to spend. It's just the, the spending decisions are, are, are not, 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 not that great. Absolutely. And I guess that's where I would say that we, where you've, what you've highlighted there is basically the two extremes of, of, of the self-sustaining model in inverted commas. You have one which is extremely conservative and the other which is, I would say, very aggressive. And I think, but but we have to bear in mind part of the reason it's aggressive is because it's a listed company. And so sentiment bears value mm. in that instance, right? So if you go out and buy a Paul Pogpa, you will see that the actual value of the company rises. FSGs don't have that um they don't have that 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 uh, incentive, right? Because it's a private company, they don't need to do that. But I think there is a happy medium somewhere in, 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 in between. And I think especially at points. Now, what I don't expect FSG to do is, or like any ownership to do is overspend systematically over a period of three, four, five years. But what I do expect, and I think this is again going back to kind of going back to my, my kind of core um profession with my professional hat on, what I do expect is that at points in time where there's a stress scenario, where there is a market disruption that you cannot foresee, at that point in time, that's when you have to you have to recognize a slightly different model. You have to say, well, look, now this necessitates us potentially putting money into the, taking a loan out to facilitate the working capital. Because fundamentally, I think football is one of those things and sports in general is that this is, so sports economics is a very, very discrete type of economics. You yeah. can't be successful. It, it Success breeds success, but in, in, in a way that's almost much more, much more direct than any other than any other business because fundamentally all of your sponsorship contracts all of your uh, well 90% of your um, revenues are essentially intertwined with how successful you are yeah. right and so there's an idea there that you just have to do the cost benefit analysis 
there that says, well, look, if we have to pay a premium on the interest rate payment to for this loan to advance something a year, two years, two years earlier, then potentially that revenue generation that this adds into the overall, um, and you know, very very simply, you know, if you want to if you want to use a very very simple valuation model, your you know, a, 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 your DCF model, right, or your discount to cash flow model, right, that those revenue generation that kind of increases in year two, three, four will more than pay for itself. I think that's the thing that I think FSG and look. FSG are smart people. They know what like they're, they're not getting this wrong in terms of uh, like um, theoretically. I think what they're doing is they're pricing risk incorrectly here at times, oh. and I think I, and I wonder whether that's based on the fact that their understanding of the English game they're not they're not very deeply rooted within the English game to understand how that exactly works because I think. That's where your premium payment for certain assets pay for themselves over a slightly longer term, because that premium then generates the additional additional um, income over the next two three years that then pays for that for that um, essentially an art, yeah essentially it pays for that incremental um, overpayment of an asset because that asset fits well because I guess. It's almost from a from a from a business perspective. It's it's almost the acquisition of a um, of a company that's very complementary to what you do. Mm. Now, the value of that company maybe if 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 you look at it individually as a company, if you price that company with whatever pricing model you have, it might have um, a valuation of a hundred. But you know that as soon as you put the expertise of what that company does into your company, then your company's revenues go up by 20%. And therefore, to you, that the, the value of that company will be incremental, sorry, significantly more than that 100, because fundamentally, it adds value to your, to your overall company. And I think at this point in time, what I seem to think is that they're not factoring that as much as they should into their pricing valuations. Mm. Yeah, no, and that's certainly you know a concern that I share. But I also look at the whole cost benefit um, angle and FSG's view of that in a uh, different way as well. In the in the sense that um, they might look at the investment that's required um, to re- remain as a top four club. And then look at the investment that's then required to go that one step further um, to win the major honours. But to win those major honours, you potentially need to sign a player that is transformational, you know, a Harland or a Bellingham type, and the cost associated to that. And they may look at the okay, well, what's the difference between finishing second in the Premier League and finishing first? The difference in revenue, prize money. Um, is only about three, four million pounds. That's all. Um, and then on top of that, um, would there be an increase in match day revenue? Not really. Would their key commercial deals um, bring in um, significantly more money? 
Potentially uh, um, a bit more money, but certainly not what I describe as significant. I mean, yes, yes. The, the the Nike deal might generate more by way of kit sales. Um, you know, if if the club wins the Premier League, you know, in the close season, you know, more fans are likely to go out and purchase, you know, the kit. Um, but that again, in the grand scheme of things, might only generate another four or five million pounds. Um, but in order to kick on and go that one step further. Um, and especially given how we've seen over recent seasons, how fine the margins are between finishing first and second, to get that player in who can make that difference, um, it appears to be that, yes, whilst the club was happy to bring in those transformational signings um, back in 2018, since then, to a large extent, they've been reluctant. And, and clearly there was a golden opportunity in just this summer with uh, Jude Bellingham being on the market and, um, you know, not only the manager, but even players like uh, Trent and Henderson having gone on a major charm offensive over the last two to three years. Despite all of their efforts, that all amounted to nothing. Um, in the end, the club didn't even make a formal bid for the player. Um, I suspect that they sounded out through the agent, uh, maybe the, fa- uh, the father as well. Well, what 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 kind of money are we looking at? Um, in terms of wages, the overall package, um, fees for you know facilitating the deal through intermediaries, etc., and they just walked away. Um, and you know, with a different, more aggressive approach, um, in order to kick on and go that one step further, um, that player might now be playing for Liverpool Football Club. Completely agree. I completely agree. However, my slight, my slight. Um, disagreement here is I don't think that's I completely agree with every single thing you've just said in terms of I think that's exactly what's happened they've they've priced up the entire entire deal and just thought it's just too rich for us we're not doing this right and again like you said because what's the upside here the upside's 10 million Mm. you know for winning the league 12 million 15 million 20 million it's just not worth it because that's going to cost us 250 300 million right whatever it's 200 200 million ish I think all in over the course of the um, so I guess that I completely agree with you, but I guess my thing is almost I'm okay with that. I've come to terms with that's not, you know, the idea we don't, you know, we don't buy supersize, we create supersize, even though I think it's complete, it's complete rubbish because uh, we started winning when we bought Alison and um, Virgil. Hmm. Um, but you know, let's park that to one side. Um, but I think I think what they've done really badly over the last few years is that second tier of players who are on the periphery of being superstars. Theoretically, Liverpool were, prior to the past year, we should have, we could have basically got any player we wanted to that wasn't playing for Real Madrid, Barcelona, or Man City, or Bayern, I'd argue. Right? Any player we wanted, we could have potentially got. And I think at that point in time, that's my, my, my concern here is that we, we stopped doing what we were doing before. But instead of then deviating to something interesting and something kind of developing that, we basically just stopped. Mm. Um, and I think that's where the problematic element is. Like Jude Bellingham is a phenomenal play, football player, but at least your player profiling should be that there's, you know, there's four players on the list. Player, player two, three on player two on the list, 
costs 20% of Jude Bellingham and the drop down in quality is 15%, right? That's a no brainer. That's what you execute on, right? You don't, you don't need to execute on a hundred percent three times as expensive. You just go down and you're down a ladder and you just execute on the next one because the, like the relative value is a lot better. Yeah. What we seem to have lost, what we seem to have become is aspirational for the superstar um, game-changing footballer, but no, but we don't want to play. We don't want to play with those. We don't want to play with that hand. The, the the numbers on the table we're not willing to engage with, but we are willing to. We 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 are aspiring to that player. And I think those two things are fundamentally incompatible, right? We have to change the model. We either step back from those and say, well, look, actually, Madrid, Barca, Bayern, Man United, whoever else uh, man city chelsea you go for those we'll take the next layer down and we'll make sure that our relative value trade comes out of that versus the player that you're that you really want so we want jude we can't get jude this player is like i said this player is 85 percent jude's technical ability in all of these metrics but is actually only 30 percent of Jude's cost. So we need to basically get this done. We don't seem to be doing that, which I think is my primary concern. Because like as a as a financial like as in as somebody in finance, I totally see why you don't execute on Jude Bellinger. Because you're incremental in the best possible universe, you win the league. Hello. I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. Next year, you win the league, you win the Europa League. And... You know, let's say you win the FA Cup. The incremental difference between that and inning the top four is, like you said, about 12, 13 million, mm. 15 million. It just doesn't yeah. pay, just doesn't make sense. The numbers just don't make sense for Jude Bellingham, yeah. right? But, but then there has to be a way that Liverpool Football Club is still attractive because we are currently in a and I'm gonna. This is gonna sound really quite silly, but we're quite lucky that the people who are challenging are Manchester City and not Manchester United, because Liverpool's fan base for the romantic club will exist as long as the person who the, the teams that's winning doesn't have that appeal. If Manchester United had were at the top, a lot of those kids around the world buying Liverpool tops would be buying Man United tops because they have all that mythology associated with it. I mm. think that's where 
that's what one of the things we have to factor in. If this model to be sustainable long term, if there is, if Liverpool needs to stay at the top of that tree, and th- that six hundred million revenue keeps progressively going up, then that attraction has to be there, and you can't have that attraction being top four all the time. People just lose interest, and people, you know. And when I say that, I don't mean the hardcore Liverpool fans that watch, you know, every single game, irrespective of what time in the morning it's on, because that they're not the ones where the they, they don't have the elasticity. Uh, sorry, that's not where the elasticity of revenues is, right? Because they're the ones who are going to buy Liverpool tops, irrespective of whether Liverpool are third, fourth, fifth, sixth, right? Yeah. It's the other hundreds and thousands of kids who potentially, if Liverpool, if they see a Liverpool parade, are going to get on the Liverpool bandwagon and then will be on the Liverpool bandwagon for the, for the next 10 years, that you need to ensure that, that you, you lock in. And I think that's where we're on the periphery of losing that market. And I think that's where the long-term um, uh, kind of uh, like strategy has to be in play. Now, mm-hmm. This obviously comes back to the fundamental question. I think that we've all got in the back of our mind: what is the long-term strategy for FSG, right? Because if that doesn't come into their uh, calculations, if they don't that they don't plan to be here in five, ten years, then those revenues that further down that line just are irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know that that's certainly. Um, something I'd like to explore in a bit more detail with you a bit later on in terms of the earlier point and also that more recent point. Um, the earlier point being, um, you know, why perhaps have we not um, invested whilst we've been ahead? Um, and, you know, I'll kind of delve into that a bit later on. But uh, just going back to another point that you raised, um, and this is to do with um, transfer fees. And so, you know, during the course of the summer, we, we did see um, incredible outlay on um, players, um, especially again in the Premier League, where um, players with minimal experience were going for 40, 50 million pounds or more. And players that perhaps even had just one or two good seasons um, were going for figures, um, you know, in and around the 100 million pound mark. And Caicedo, Declan Rice are a couple of examples of that. And um, those types of fees are scary. Um, you know, if those are the type of fees paid for players like that, um, imagine um, for a player um, just about coming into their prime who's had three or four really strong years and is on the cusp of or is world class. Um, you know, you're talking 200 million plus, uh, which are numbers that, you know, clearly Liverpool Football Club and FSG won't go anywhere near, certainly not based on the current operating model. But the transfer fees, though, just going back to that, um, you know, as, as I noted, were very, very high um, this summer. Uh, some are hopeful that that was an aberration. Others think that that is the new normal. Where, where do you fall on that debate? I think historically we've rarely ever seen a um, a regression in the transfer fees. I think it's always been inflationary as a market. And I think that, mm. I think, Part of the reason, I guess, is that uh, revenues revenues keep going up, right? Especially like television revenues. Um, and so, as long as that's going on, the way that clubs will look at it is, I'm spending X percent of my revenue on player Y, and therefore, if 
the percent the percentage remains the same, the top value increases, i.e. revenues go from 300 to 400, then that, that X percentage that I'm now willing to spend is more. And so I think that that's a... So therefore, I mean, what I don't ever foresee, uh, envisage is those going backwards because I think revenues aren't going to go backwards. The, the, the Sky deal, if if not necessarily in, um, increasing, it will be relatively flat line. Uh, but the foreign uh, the foreign uh, markets are going to increase still. I think there's a lot of there's still a significant capacity for those deals to keep increasing. And as soon as and as as long as they do. Um, you have a market which it makes absolutely no sense to not increase your value because, you know, like I said, if you're willing to spend 10% of your annual revenue on a player, if that 10% was previously, you know, 30 million and now it's 40 million, well, you know, it's just an RV trade. It means nothing to you what the actual number is. It's just the percentage mm. that you've allocated. I think that's where we've got to here. It's literally, um, it's 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 literally that's the game. Like the numbers are sort of irrelevant. What you see because you know, we've gone. You know, the gradient at which the um, uh, the TV revenues have increased um, from the Premier League is just it's, it's ridiculous. It's exponential, right, over the last kind of few years. Well, since since it began. So I think that's where I think there is not going to be a regression to any kind of um, uh, previous time where the you know to to, to a decreasing uh, a deflationary market in the in, on the transfer fees. Mm-hmm. Um, how much more they'll increase? This is, that's that's an interesting question, and I think again it's tied to what those foreign um, rights, the sale of the foreign rights, where where they end up plateauing. Um, but essentially, I mean, the Premier League is a Super League now, right? I mean, let's get complete. Let's be completely frank. Part of the reason that the Super League was being pushed by, um, you know, Juventus and Barcelona and Madrid is because it's to compete with the Premier League. That's essentially what it was, right? They can't compete yeah. the market in the market, and that. So we're dictating that market now. Now, now the question becomes: how How are you smart? How can you smartly navigate that? And I think that's the million-dollar question here, right? It's the um, how do you navigate an inflationary market without blowing up, right? And we've seen we've seen. We've seen brilliant examples of this, right? From people, you know, teams like Brighton and Brentford, um, who have navigated that using fund- very, very basic things, right? I mean, I say basic in terms of the very basis of football, of the of the football model is basically identifying players, and they are able to do that better than I would argue anybody in the U- in 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 in, uh, in England. And yeah. as a consequence, as a consequence of that, they basically. You know they're able to play that inflationary market. We, on the other hand, are in a very, very, in a very different situation. And again, and this is probably a question that that we're going to touch upon a little bit later. But I think this idea that we should do what we should use the Brighton Brentford model, I think, is a fallacy. I don't think we can because of the relative ambitions. Right, and what and, and our risk reward profile is yeah. very very different to Brighton, the players that Brighton and Brentford will acquire. And I think, as a fan, it's a nice idea. It's a conceptually a great idea. Why don't we buy Caicedo when he's a five million, right? But then the question is, how many Caicedos do you buy, and when they're not very good for ten games, are you willing to keep playing them? 
Mm. Right. And so the argument is that the model that works, and I've been pushing this for a while now, and I think we've had this conversation, the only model that makes sense to me within this inflationary market, the way it is, is player acquisition in conjunction with a multi-club model. Yeah. Right. And I think anything outside of that, you end up you end up as Man United, right? Mm. Overpaying for players um, because they sort of fit the bill and then the next manager comes in and you're a, it's a complete basket case and you spend literally hundreds of millions on player acquisition without a, a coherent strategy because you can't really have a coherent strategy because winning is the coherent strategy, right? Yeah. As opposed to Brentford, you can very much at Brentford, you can definitely have a coherent strategy because your baseline is we need to stay in the league. Anything above that's a bonus, sure. right? And I think, and so your ability to risk is a lot higher, right? I can take a risk on 10 players, three, four of them come off. Absolutely fantastic. Because what's the worst that can happen? Oh, we'll drop from 10th to 12th. If we lose a couple of games, 13th, 14th, okay, then we'll think about what we're doing, right? So I think that's where that's where the mod we we have to tweak depending on what the aspirational goal is. What does Liverpool Football Club want to be? And I think what we haven't, and again going back to the FSG debate, is what we haven't come to terms with yet is what does Liverpool Football Club what sorry, what's the strategy of Liverpool Football Club? as the super club because we when we've become a super club by our revenue by the increases in our revenue over the last 10 years but we've never actually ever behaved like a super club and i think that disparity is where um is again something that FSG, the, the people, the, the management board, not even just FSG, it's just like the management, need to decide what does Liverpool Club, Liverpool Football Club, the super club, look like and what's the strategic direction of that? Like, how are you planning to then be able to compete at that level and sustain your position as a super club? Because mm. that, that's something that is very, very recent, right? I mean, we've done this. This is three years. This is four years Right. This isn't a, this isn't. And, and so to me, and I think I've mentioned this, I've had conversations with various people actually um, about this is where people are adamant that why don't we use the same model that got us to the top of the hill, to the top of the mountain. And I would say that's actually never worked because every company in the history of um, uh in, in in the history of like uh, economics, has a has a pathway to the top, and then they have to develop a strategy because you cannot use the same strategy because people start working out what you're doing and how you how you're generating revenues, right? So even when Apple started, Apple started and completely revolutionized because of the, uh, I guess it was the um, the the iPods back yeah. then, right? Yeah. And yeah. then but then you can't just stop there because everybody else has one. Right. So what do you do next and what do you do next and what do you do? And you have to keep ahead of the curve. I think so. So I think while, again, it's romanticism where it's like, oh, no, no, what we were doing this so well, why don't we do this? Well, the reason we the reason why we can't do this is the money today that we buy is 95 million. That's how much it costs, like somebody with three years of experience. Like Lavi has got 
12 months. He's got, he's got 30 games under his belt in the Premier League and he went for close to 60 million. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So your model has to change because the, where you where you identify value is a completely different price point mm. as as your revenues increase. And I guess my question has always been that is there an argument that when and and maybe and this is a question for you and maybe this is uh, this is a, a um, something I've been thinking about quite a lot. Is there is there a question from FSG? or the way that the management look at things, where they're like, the incremental price differential between a very average player and a good player is so small that they get to a point where it's almost not worth buying the worst player. So you might as well, as you keep going up, then ultimately you end up at the top of the hill. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so is that the strategy divergence where previously you were very happy because you could get Mane for 30 million, right? Mm. But now if, but if Mane was 70 million, well, then why are you buying Mane? Why don't you buy, I don't know, like at that point in time, maybe Sane. Sane was much more established, right? Playing in, playing for a, like, as in just had a higher profile. I, I can't actually remember, to be honest, but, you know, there must have been a better player than Mane profile wise as in like in the ether that was no that was at that point thought to be of a higher potential than money oh sure well if i mean uh, for our longer term listeners um you may recall that summer of 2016 when we were being linked with money and uh our um most uh prolific podcaster the man himself dave hendrick um spent <laughs> Many, many a day um, during that period, um, tweeting about his um, disappointment that we were even being linked with the player. He felt that there were many um, superior alternatives um, and, and, and would tweet about them at length. And ultimately, we ended up signing the player. And, you know, as Dave will admit, you know, he, he you know, largely Mane proved Dave wrong and others wrong as well, you know, and he turned out to be a, a very good player. Albeit, I mean, there were times when, you know, his form wasn't quite as strong, but I mean, certainly during his time with the club, um, you know, he, he did deliver and then some and was a key instrumental part of the success of the football club over the last few years during the clock era. But yeah, I mean, you're quite right. Um, you know, there were plays even at that time that, um, you know, whether it was Dave or others, you know, were readily happy to point to and say, right, that would be a better player than Mane. That player over there would be a better player than Mane. Why don't we go for them? Um, and but, it's interesting. Uh, sorry, yeah. and uh, sorry to interject, but I think it's interesting because at that point in time, one of the criteria seemed to be that they wanted somebody who was embedded in the uh, in in the Premier League, right? That was one of the criteria that seems to be quite high on their list. Of look, this guy's performed at the Premier League at a level and is about to take off, so maybe this is it's worth a risk because that decreases the risk, right? Mm. So again, it's going back to that risk reward scenario, right? That um, uh, you've got to you've got to quantify risk to be able to identify what an asset is worth now if you can decrease some of that risk by saying well look this guy's performing in a worse team in this league then that at least diminishes the ability to settle in the league uh oh sorry that diminishes the risk of him being able to settle in the league so therefore we can kind of decrease that risk so we can kind of incrementally go the the, the price we're willing to pay is a little bit more than if the equivalent of Mane's numbers playing in the bundesliga mm. 
right? And I think that's sure. where that's where that. Is, but unfortunately, where we've arrived at today is that there's so the the Premier League is so inflated as a market that is there an argument where you just don't touch the Premier League and you just go and don't and and buy externally because that premium is just not worth it because potentially you could get somebody who granted doesn't has a different risk profile because he has not played in the premier league but actually ha, is a much superior player in lots of other instances which will then offset the risk in other instances so like the classic example being Sobislai, right Sobislai hasn't played in the premier league um versus somebody like a uh, Mason Mount Right. So, I mean, because I guess we were blinked with Mason Mount. We were, you know, potentially, I mean, I personally think that we were linked with Mason Mount for about 35 million. And as soon as the numbers got, went up, they just decided to walk away. But, you know, the point being that, you know, that premium that seems to be associated with Mason Mount, because Mason Mount, I think, technically speaking, I think we can all agree, is not a patch on Soberslide's actual technical skill set. But he was a sure. less, of, he, he was considered less of a risk because he's kind of done it in the Premier League. Would Soberslide be able to adapt to this league, the pace of the league? How long will it take? We need somebody to kind of settle in. Those were intangibles that are very difficult to quantify. And that's where the pricing model, I guess, comes back to, right? And then you have to price that risk. And it's, and they're all intangibles. Like you see, impo- that, like there isn't a simple formula that says X plus Y equals Z. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they would be doing it. Well, I mean, apart from whatever Brighton's got, because Brighton seemed to have them. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should just steal Brighton's model. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, indeed. Um, right. Uh, I'd like to just pivot away um, from transfer fees and uh, talk about um, another um, even more significant area of costs, and that is um, that of player wages. And as we know, um, the Liverpool... Uh, wage bill is amongst the biggest in the world uh, for the 21-22 season, which is the last season for which accounts um, are available. Um, the wage bill was a whopping £366 million, which was um, within the top four or five wage bills officially. Um, uh, and you, you can read into that um, <laughs> emphasis on the word officially in, in any way you'd, you'd like. But... Um, with with that wage bill, though, um, there is uh, the fact we we know about that UEFA are um, replacing what was the FFP rules, financial fair play rules, with a new set of rules um, um, to do with cost control. One of which applies a ratio uh, which links weight, the wages and outlay on wages with amortisation to turnover. And the intention is that by next season, clubs should be um, restricting wages and amortization to no more than 70% of turnover. Um, I believe that ratio for this season is 80%. Um, and, and by the way, that's um, the wages for just the players. So I noted 366 million, that does include wages for coaching staff, academy players, um, you know, Dave in IT, um, Carol in, in the canteen and all other staff that happen to work at the club. Um, so if you strip out all of those costs and restrict it purely to the outlay on the play, the first team playing squad plus amortization that for next season uh, should, should be exceeding no more than 70%. So with that in mind then, this army, um, to what extent do you feel that FSG were trying to forward plan for that um, scenario for next season? Um, 
And how, to what extent do you think that might have affected their decision-making over recruitment this summer? And as we noted earlier, um, giving the Bellingham example, um, do, 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 do you think that that was a key factor in, in that decision to walk away from that deal? I don't actually know. No, I don't at all. Um, I think I think the decision to walk away from the Bellingham deal was very much a realization and i think it was a realization it was kind of the penny finally dropped that there was a lot of stuff to do uh and we if we allocate look i actually let me rephrase that i think there was two elements to it one was a philosophical apprehension to giving a 19 year old that much money right because i think the model that they've always wanted to work with is you come in and then you prove yourself and then we'll pay you top dollar but we'll pay you top dollar once you've proved yourself at um liverpool and i think and i think here there is a very very definitive fear of not becoming man united Mm. where you have players with extremely high wages that you can't get rid of because they're not willing to go anywhere because nobody's willing to pay them the salaries so whereas, which I think they were burdened with sort of by the back end of um, of the last kind of couple of years, right? With um, uh, Oxley Chamberlain and um, I guess to a certain extent Cater as well. I mean, that they were on a lot of money and we can see from where they've been that the market for those players weren't wasn't as huge as other people seem to suggest, i.e. why aren't we getting rid of them? Well, the reason we're not getting rid of them is because nobody wants to actually pay that money. Right. It's like forget a transfer fee. Nobody wants to actually give them anything like the kind of salaries they're on. So you're you're sort of lumbered with them long term. And so I think that was that was one of the issues. And nobody's saying Bellingham was going to be a flop in any way. I think anybody who's seen it knows he's going to be a superstar. But, you know, he gets a knee injury and and in in a similar way to, I guess, Nabi Keita, who looked like a superstar, um, like, um, you know, a a superstar in the making he loses a yard of pace can't jump a lot of that athleticism starts going you start you know you start rolling back that 400 400k a week or whatever he's on 350 400k a week and you're you're lumped with that for five six years and i think that's where the apprehension is for that so i think i i I think I think that model obviously comes into it. They, 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 you know, they're not stupid. They've got these. I, they obviously know these parameters that they're working with. But I think in terms of that specific deal, I think it was a much wider discussion as to well, look, we need to buy. Realistically, I think they know they haven't bought enough players. They knew they sort of knew they needed to buy six, five, six players. They've bought four, and I think they also knew that there was no chance they were able to do that if they spent close to 200 or allocate close to 200 million um on one player so so i think that's where that um that's where i think that disconnect is i think they think that they're they've got a comparative advantage which they do have i mean there's no there's no there's no sort of getting away from that right this 70 you know the 70 percent marker well by definition anybody who earns more uh, sorry, the more revenues you earn, by definition, that number is larger. So you have a comparative advantage. And this has always been one of the things that 
they were always holding on to when they came to the club, which is this FFP idea that, well, look, Liverpool Football Club is an institution. And therefore, if we, we have the potential to increase the revenues and inherently have a comparative advantage against every other club. So if we can do that in conjunction with having a smart acquisition policy, theoretically, we should walk this. Right. And I think and I think that's always been. And so that's why they were extremely frustrated by the uh, lack of bite for better phraseology of FFP initially. Mm. So I think th- I think for them, this is almost the ideal scenario where there are discrete limits implemented by the Premier League. You know, it's not an external body that's kind of out like in the ether. This is the Premier League kind of institutionalizing this these limits. Now, obviously, <laughs> as you started the conversation, you know, there is there are revenues and there are inverted commas revenues, right? And we've obviously all know that Manchester City's commercial department is the greatest commercial department in the history of the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure how you compete with that, but you know, well, yeah. I think outside of outside of Man City and maybe you could argue Manchester United, like there is no way that that 70% for us is lower than any other club in the Premier League. So we, so theoretically, worst case scenario, we should be the third best team and that's with everything else being equal. So it's an ideal scenario. I like, I mean, yeah. So to, as a synopsis, it's, I think it, I think for FSG, this is what they've been pushing for a while. Mm. So let's yeah. see if this has teeth. Because for them, your jumping off point is third. Let's say, let's say for argument's sake, Man- Manchester United have a greater, uh, have larger revenues, and uh, Man City have larger revenues, um, quote unquote. Um, but then theoretically, I think that's it, right? I mean, mm. I, don't, I think it's very hard to argue that anybody else comes ahead of us in terms of yeah. revenue generation which yeah, means yeah. that which means that you know we're we're right there third as a as, as a jumping off point and to fsg that's the ideal scenario right we we're third at worst if things work out and some of our decisions go well we win the league so if we win it every three years great we, we kind of maintain that status but worst case scenario is that our revenue yeah our very revenue volatility is really small Mm. Right, which again mm. is one of the super league kind of it ideologies, right? You don't want variation in, in your um, in, you don't want volatility in your in your revenue because you, because it it because strategic planning is a pain in the ass if you basically can't um, you can't you can't uh, you don't have any idea what revenues you're going to get in three years down the line. Indeed, yeah, and uh, hence the kind of pulling up the drawbridge um, comparisons that were made when, uh, you know, the Super League was touted uh, a couple of years back. Um, But um, just to um, then move to another subject around investment, and that relates to that of investment in um, academy players, but also the topic you touched on earlier, which is about um, recruitment, of players directly from South America, which is a criticism that has been leveled at the club, stroke the owners. That why, well, why on earth don't we sign players directly from you know South America? It's a bit of a hotbed of young talent. Um, you know, others like Manchester City and um, Arsenal and Chelsea happen to sign players from that continent, and yet we appear extremely reluctant to do so. Um, so that is, as I say, a criticism that has been leveled, um, but also that, as I touched on a, a moment ago, about um, 
the academy in that um, we have a wage structure for uh, our academy, um, which other rival clubs do not have. So, um, you know, the Chelsea, the Manchester Cities, Manchester United, even Arsenal uh, will pay higher salaries to their, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds than Liverpool Football Club does. And so the argument has been that as a result of that approach, um, these other clubs are um, siphoning off um, the majority of the young, best young talent in the country and even from further afield. Um, do you agree with that criticism? Do you think that FSG um, are also, um, you know, not seeing the bigger picture or even arguably negligent around um, investment in youth and um, recruitment from uh, South America? Okay, so so let me answer each one uh, independently because I think I think I have discrete answers to this. So I watch a lot of youth team, Liverpool youth team football, uh, mm-hmm. and this has been my criticism for a long time, right? And it's not based on any utopic idea of how I want our youth team to be great. It's fundamentally just an economic argument. I can buy the best young 15-year-old for sub-5 million. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. (laughs) This is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan... I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, magboxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. The probability of him making it might be 20%. 20-25%. That's a risk worth taking. If we're saying that buying an elite player costs you 100 million and there's still a 25, sorry, 75%, uh, sorry, a 25% of percent risk of him not making it. So I think the numbers, I just don't get the lot. I genuinely don't understand the logic here. Right. Mm. And we can talk about intangibles as to, oh, we don't want to embed these um, cultural values of overpayment for, 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 for these kids but again I think I, th- I think it's just it's a flawed argument because you're trying to create a reality that you're trying to create a bubble in a reality that just doesn't exist in the ecosystem right because sure. it's not as if you're the only player there and it's not as if you have some huge comparative advantage that says look we've got this amazing academy that's better than everybody else's right I think that's the issue here you're not you don't have anything you don't have anything to offer that's so unique yet you want them to choose you over others. And I think that that equation doesn't doesn't work for me. And to me, it's always been been a flaw here because 
like very, 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 very base level. And I apologize here to those people who, you know, much more um, want to look at this much more humanistically um, than I am, you know, because I'm essentially commodifying, uh, commodifying like players um, and youth players specifically. But to me, that equation just makes sense, right? Because if you buy 10 for a million each and one makes it, into a squad player and one you're and, and two you're able to sell for a few million that more 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 than pays for itself so i think there's a i think there's, a, there's just a flaw in how they've been able to um they've been able to kind of create their strategy i think it's i think the strategy is more philosophical than it is pragmatic and i don't and i and i and while I like the philosophical aspect of no, no, we don't want to commoditize, um, sorry, commodify uh, um, young players, I think there's a reality to the fact that the converse side to that is actually no, we're giving these kids. If you don't want to commodify young players, well, bring the young players here and say, look, we're going to give you the optimum chance of you actually creating a career for yourself. So you're actually, you know, the other side to that equation is basically you're kind of giving these kids the best chance because you're not Chelsea and you don't want to farm them out. You actually want to give them a route. So you have the appropriate structure, like, you know, the support structure around it to basically um, allow them to excel. I'm, I'm saying philosophically, if you want to kind of align those two things, that's how you do it, right? You basically say, philosophically speaking, we don't want to treat this as a, um, you know, like commodifying um, these young, young kids coming through. Mm. But what we're going to do is actually, you know, these kids have really want to be football players. So instead of them going to Chelsea and being really treated like, you know, like farm animals, we're going to really treat them as humans. So we're going to ask them to come here. We're going to pay them an appropriate time, but we're going to tr we're going to pay them the value that we think that they will have. But we're going to make sure that they have a career and they have a social structure around them that kind of makes makes them the best people they can be, right? Yeah. And I think, but but I just think that like. Primarily, I just think the economics don't make sense here. Like, I think you could, I think this idea, like, so the classic example, Ben Doak is one, right? Nobody's going to tell me, turn around and tell me that Ben Doak is unique and that there's no player like Ben Doak that's happened over the last five years, right? And I can categorically tell you there is because I kind of, you know, like Man City have have have, have a couple already in the, in the youth academy that are going to break it, uh, that are going to break through. Um, so, that disconnect again just seems weird to me because it's just it's a really basic argument that you know you pay you invest and again look we're not saying go and go out and buy 20 but like manchester united's best forward player currently is an academy academy player that they bought from argentina who we were linked with but walked away because it was too expensive mm. right yeah. and i mean that, yeah. that that's very very that, that's been i think even the athletic had a piece on that so that's not like me um, divulging information that nobody knows. This is kind of quite like well known. Garnacho was very much the pool of players, and this is when they did the pre-Brexit. We're going to go out and buy every young player that exists um, that that's profiled. You know, I think they did him, and then they did the Hannibal kid, and they paid quite big premiums for these. But you know, Garnacho makes it. All of those, all everybody else out of that list is kind of irrelevant, right? Because they've just got a first team player that kind of um, that they've bought for five million or whatever it was that they paid. So I think the economics don't make sense. 
Um, so to me, that's one of the things that we really need to focus on. And also, again, the, se the second part to that is, uh, and somebody will, no, no, people will kind of come back and say, oh, no, no, we do invest. We buy, you know, we bought Bobby Clark and we bought, um, you know, Kate Gordon. Uh, and I would say that this is a very recent thing. I would say this is this desire to buy these things. Uh, but it's again, but it's littered with one or two at most every summer. Yeah. And that's only been the last couple of years, by the way. I mean, prior to that, we weren't like, you know, the Bobby Clark, the first kind of player that we bought of a high profile was essentially, I think, Kate Gordon. Sure. Yeah. And it's a blinkered way of looking at it as well, because again, it, people who are not paying much attention or any attention to other rival clubs, um, you know, the, the Chelsea, the Manchester Cities have been paying and um, reasonable sums for, for, you know, these youngsters as well. Um, you know, whether these are players playing for a Brentford or a QPR or whoever, um, you know, the, the, these clubs are spending and spending in excess of what Liverpool spend. Um, but I agree with your point in that, you know, there's a couple of angles to it. And one is, um, you know, if the players do come through, they save you significant sums um, that you'd otherwise have to spend in the transfer window. Um, and, you you know, you can look at examples like Foden at City or Trent at Liverpool. Okay. Um, but then on top of that, it, it's, the sales that can be generated from moving these players on. And again, you know, you know, City just in the past week, £45 million pounds, um, with add-ons for Cole Palmer okay. to Chelsea. Um, now, that is a player that they didn't even recruit. That was a player that was brought through their um, academy from a young age and has gone for massive profit. And, and that just that revenue alone will more than cover the cost of that um, academy setup for several years. Um, and all you need is one of those. And, and granted, you know, academy players then being sold for that sum of money doesn't happen often. Um, but if and when it does, then that automatically, as I say, um, covers the cost and justifies that outlay. Um, and, and again, it, it just seems a bit bizarre that um, FSG don't appear to really acknowledge that or um, appreciate that. And the weird thing there, to me, even more so, is that they had the classic example of exactly what the upside there is by one of the only players we did that with was Raheem Sterling. Oh. He he progressed through, we bought him at 15 from QPR, progressed through, um, make, was an instrumental part of our challenging team uh, under Brendan Rodgers, and then we flogged him for 50 million, right? That is upside everywhere you look there. Right, because essentially yeah. we basically sold him and bought money, right? And then we had a delta of fifteen million on top of that, right? That, that to me, if you've had that as an experience, I don't understand how then that doesn't instigate you to kind of invest further into the profile, right? Because that that seems to be well, look, if this worked so well, why aren't we doing more of this? This seems to be the no-brainer here. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I I genuinely can't answer that question. Like I like I know a few people within Liverpool football club but generally not within the academy setup um so like that would be a really interesting question to ask the academy because every time i've heard them discuss this issue it's always been from the human humanistic angle we don't want to treat kids and at times with all due respect and look i'm, I'm sure there's a certain part of that but with all due respect i think that's i think that's just a narrative that you're trying to spin and I, th I don't think there's a i don't really think there's a reality in there because we all know that there's like Three percent. I can't even remember what the statistic is. Like three, four percent of uh, academy kids actually make it. So what's your disconnect here? You know, you you've got to almost the fact that you have an academy means that you're accepting that ninety plus percent of them are never going to make it. So 
you know, you're already kind of buying into the system. And so like then to have some of these utopic ideas seem to be a little bit like making yourself feel better about the situation rather than actually trying to be the most successful you can be in this, in, in, in within that. So, sure. sure. And then South America then. Um, so we, we briefly touched upon it in terms of the discussion around Brentford and more to the point Brighton. Um, what, what, what's your view on that then? So here, I think there is a slight, I think I, I do disagree slightly. So what, or rather not, not disagree, but I, th- I, think that's, I think there's a, I think you can't have your cake and eat it too, is my argument here. So like, I think we've at various times between yourself, myself, and the, you know, a host of people on AI have had these conversations about um, analysts and um, like the, um, sorry, the, the analytic approach versus the scouting approach. Like, let's say, let's, let's put that binary and it's not really that binary, but you know, like you have the data analyst who kind of go through forensically and say, well, this player is X, Y, Z versus you have the people who actually watch games and basically ascertain that these, this player is, um, you know, is very good and we should acquire him. The issue you've got there is South American data sets, especially for young players, are just going to be very limited. So if you rely very, very heavily on data acquisition and you have a high, a, sorry, a lower threshold on risk. So for example, I think the classic quote uh, from one of the analyst guys that I was speaking to yeah, at Liverpool was that they had to have like 160 games uh, in, um, uh, sorry, in adult football to basically have a profile. Right. So they've got like a minimum number and you know, it's not set in stone, but circa 150, 150, 90 minute games that allows them to profile a player correctly. Now, if you have those parameters that you're working with to, from the analytics department, then then you're never going to get that because Enzo Fernandez hasn't played that many games. Right. When we could have bought him. Hmm. Right. So 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 there's a there, there's a disconnect here between blaming the analysts and blaming the scouting system because the scouting system is saying, well, this guy's really good. And look, we've been watching, you know, youth development for years. This guy's going to be a superstar. And then the analyst who is sitting on our, um, well, on our board are saying, well, no, we don't, we can't, we, we, we can't validate this. Um, so like, we, like there's no validation here because we don't, firstly, we don't, the data we get from these, from, from that, those leagues, is limited. Secondly, they just haven't played enough minutes, right? And I think that's what—that's one of the reasons we step away now. Conversely, I think the 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 count the classic counter argument is yes, but Man Man City can do it. Well, Man City can do it because they can't they can afford to make mistakes. Mm. Liverpool's sure. Liverpool's like um, the way that our funding model works is we really just can't afford to have. A 40 million mistake. We've seen this with our midfield, right? Cater meant that we couldn't buy a player for three years, really. Let's be completely frank, right? The acquisition of Cater meant that we couldn't we couldn't really invest in somebody to take over his spot until a few years down the line because fundamentally we had allocated those resources for that position already. Man City don't care, right? This this went like 200 million on fullbacks at one point. We just can't compete. And then on the other end of the spectrum is your Brentfords and Brightons, which are willing to take additional risk. So they, they're happy to buy somebody off 30 games of um, adult football, uh, 
and you know 20 games of youth football because they've got a profile that they work with and potentially they'll get they'll send them out somewhere and um and he doesn't need to play and eventually if he plays he doesn't need to be super hot on day one and nobody's going to have an issue with it because you know you're brighton um or you're i mean you know let's let's scale back last year's brighton and say anything before that right three years ago if somebody if a kid comes comes into brighton and isn't great and they end up i don't know 16th nobody bats an eyelid right it's just it's it's normal so i think that's where that discrepancy is so i think for liverpool to compete there and again going back to the like to a point that we had earlier the only way to compete here that i can see like genuinely the only way that i can see is having that multi-club um structure where you can acquire these kids or and i say kids because they will be young um um, at a discounted rate because they have lots of risk attached to them. But then you are able to give them game time because you can say, well, here you can go to, you know, a team in. Uh, and again, look, the way you do it obviously would be depending on where you focus. So if you're basically buying a club in Brazil, then maybe buy a buy a club in Portugal, right? Because at least then that transitioning, cultural transition is a lot easier, right? And if you're buying, I don't know, from one of the French, uh, if you want to, acquire from maybe an African French French speaking country, then buy somebody buy a team in um in France. You know, so that, again, I think the language the and I think that's the way to do it. And it's the Red Bull kind of structure, I would argue, and it works quite well. And I think an, for an elite club, I just can't see other, another way to compete without spending multi million dollar dollars um but circumventing the risk some, somewhat because for a player to develop, they have to have game time. You buy a, an elite 17, 18 year old, how much game time are you going to give them? You know, then like we keep talking about loaning out players. Yeah, that's all fine and well, but then you have to find a team that plays a similar system to you so that when they come back, it works. And we've seen how much that, that how difficult that is at times. Right. Yeah. So oh. I think, so here, what? Yeah, I mean, look. If I was running the mod, if I was running thing, um, uh, Liverpool Football Club, I would say that it makes, considering how cheap foreign clubs are, it makes absolute sense to buy a Portuguese club, a French club, and you know, and a, yeah, maybe a Spanish club, um, and then uh, actually not a Spanish club. I'd say probably somewhere like a Belgium, right? Because they have Af- links in Africa, and there's a lot of very very talented African um, uh, kids coming through. So basically have those kind of things. And then, and then you've got that transition um, league where the, where the quality is lower. You bring these kids in, you basically farm them out to these, to your, you know, your sister clubs um, that you have, def- sorry, you very consciously appointed coaches who coach and play very similar ways that you, to you. And that doesn't obviously necessitate they have to play the same formation, but like, I mean, philosophically the same way that that you're integrating as as what kind of um traits to have in your in your um in your structures uh and then they basically kind of rise up the model and and you know and that's where you are then able to make money out because you can then sell them sell those players or bring them back as the elite ones you bring back and the others you potentially you know just run as uh, as a business model again you know, I think I think that's the only way to do it if you are going to be so uh, conservative in your approach to the transfer market. 
Yeah, and no, I, I, I agree. I think that uh, you know, if, if there isn't the desire, the appetite um, to invest very significant sums on superstars, um, then perhaps taking that alternative approach of you know investing more heavily in youth talent and hoping that you know one or two do develop into superstars and paying you know significantly Premium. smaller fees of a million, two million, three million from you know these smaller clubs. Um, you know, w- would be a less risky approach, but uh, agreed. And if you if you look at the numbers, I mean, like, I, yeah. I think somebody was quantifying this. I think you could buy a. F- I think I had a friend of mine who looked into this, who was within this, and he looked into the ability, the availability of buying clubs. And I think you could buy a club in Belgium for sub a million. Mm. Um, it was even it was based. Yeah, sorry, it was a little bit more expensive in in Spain, but not much more. Right. Um, and France was, you know, again, like ballpark. I mean, there were increase, like minimal numbers, numbers that we would we would laugh at when it comes to transfer negotiation. And if you think that's basically the value of of potentially instigating a, a structural system that allows you to develop players, but give them the competitive edges that you don't get in the youth academy you know you know for example imagine having somebody like kate gordon going out um in and, and getting to play in a competitive league now i know he's just coming back from injury but like you know let's say in january we send him out i'd much prefer that to be under the care of our own club than i would um potentially sending him to bolton or somewhere like that right where oh, essentially, well, so, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i think that's where the disconnect is because ultimately, and I think you speak to any coach. One of the one of the worry there is that you go to you, you loan players out, and what they pick up is a lot of bad habits. Because ultimately, the coach that's bringing them in doesn't really care about their development; they just want results. And so, while they while they learn the edginess of basically performing, what they do is also pick up bad habits that don't help them in the longer run when they're. Uh, for their development. And I think that's one of the ways that you you can circumvent that as well. So those two things, I think, are really intertwined. You can, it helps you with acquiring um, players from places like Brazil and Argentina because you can have a transition um, you can have a transition season in one of these leagues, which, you know, which makes the adaptation to Europe a lot easier. You know, if your lingua fancra, if your lingua fancra is Portuguese, then mm. it's it's a it's a lot easier as a cultural transition than if you kind of are dropped into London or, you know, uh, Liverpool or, you know, yeah, sure, like sure. London as in like, you know, you're flying into London. So I think that's, that's where I would argue. I think we've really, we're really missing a trick here. And I think, and I like, I don't know what the, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess the, the strategy ultimately is that if, there's an exit strategy for FSG, then that long-term, that long-term plan is not necessary. Mm-hmm. I guess that's yeah. where it comes down to, right? That's like if you're thinking about exit, if you're thinking about selling the club in the next kind of five years, then do you want to integrate a system that kind of really isn't going to implement? Sorry, isn't going to really have a dent on the valuation model sure. because you know they're not going to have any revenues, and but is a pain in the ass to do so. That's your downside there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, there were several other topics I wanted to go delve into <laughs> with you, uh, but time is 
fast running out. But I'd just like to conclude with one final one, which harks back to a point we did touch on earlier on. Um, and it was to do with whether we had or hadn't um, recruited enough um, over the last several years, certainly whilst we were ahead. Um, now, F- FSG, um, obviously, um, are still at the helm. They are still the owners of the club. But what we have seen, um, based on some reports, is that they have shifted a bit more power and control to Jurgen Klopp um, when it comes to recruitment and retention. Um, so some people have then used that to argue that, in fact, it's not FSG who are to blame, if you want to use that word, for a lack of incomings. It's actually Jurgen. Um, so do, do you think, nonetheless, that if that if those reports are true, that that has been a positive step? Or, or do you think that, um, uh, that that model that had been in place and appeared to be successful with uh, previously, Michael Edwards is the sporting director. Um, is one that we, we should try and go back to. Okay, so this is this is a really interesting question um, because I think the model works very well. Um, I also think that it has it has flaws, like every model, it has its flaws. So, oh. if you ask top of the house, I definitively agree with your premise i think i think the i think giving klopp the responsibility to both manage a football club i.e coach manage a football club and do all these hundred extra things that you need to do as part of the recruitment is suboptimal at best because essentially the one thing that we know he's an absolute superstar at you're taking away time from him doing that to doing stuff that, well, we've let's ignore the fact whether, sorry, let's not ignore whether he's very good at it or not. He just has, he just doesn't have that profile for that, right? So, like, you could find somebody better than Klopp easily to do that part of, um, you know, division of responsibility, right? So, to me, I think, to me, I think the narrative sort of is slightly incorrect. I think. What's ended up happening is when that desire to sell the club from FSG happened, the giving club power more power was sort of, I think, interesting. Sorry, sorry. Let me start this again. So interestingly, you mentioned Shakiri because I think Shakiri was probably the start of one of why Klopp wanted more oversight of the players because he did not fit his profile. Now, Klopp is a coach, and you'll hear Guardiola say something very, very similar, will be adamant. And I don't, sorry, now I'm not speaking as a financial analyst. I'm speaking like somebody who basically just reads a lot of like tactics and like, you know, like coaching manuals and things. They're, they're obsessed with basically being able to spend their time coaching. But unfortunately, what that requires is a very, that, that's why a lot of these guys, like the Pep, Pep Guardiola, um, um, uh, Jurgen Klopp, um, even De Zerbi will basically say, we would like a smaller squad that fits our profiles than a larger club because we have to actually coach these guys, right? And we don't want to waste time trying to coach things that these guys don't, like some of these guys on the periphery aren't going to understand. So I think what ended up happening was that there was a few players that were bought that were periphery players that were 
really good footballers. Let's let's not get this wrong. Like the analysts and and Edwards were very 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 good at identifying good players, but they just didn't fit the model. So the classic example last year was basically Carvalho. We bought Carvalho, who is a very very good footballer, but where does where does somebody like that play in a Jurgen Klopp philosophical system, right? I mean, sorry, not philosophical, but like, like you know, tactical system. It just doesn't fit. So it's irrelevant whether he's a good player or not. Now, I think Klopp, when the um, when he signed his contract, I think then at that point in time he was able to negotiate more power, and I think he definitely did. And I think in that sense, I think he's almost. I I would be very surprised if today you asked him and he basically said that was the right decision necessarily. Um, because I think, and I think that is, and but I think, but I also think the sale of FS, oh sorry, the attempted sale of Liverpool played into that really negatively because it created a vacuum because um, um, their spokesperson on the ground who was mediating wasn't there anymore because um, he was kind of. This, uh, well, doing well, trying to identify investors, potential um, parties that would acquire it, Liverpool. Um, so then, I think that dynamic between between the various parties just became a lot more intangible. And and FSG made, sorry, not intangible, but more um, like incompatible, you, you could say. And I think FSG then made the decision that the most the biggest asset at the club was Klopp, and so we would have to side with him. And I think that's in the whole scheme of things. If you're working within these strict parameters of um, of uh, budget constraints, then I think that model has just been a complete mess. Um, to be completely frank, I think it's been it's basically undermined um, the comparative advantage of the people um, in in at Liverpool. Right, Klopp has to manage his time between trading and manage managing his team and coaching his team and then looking at player player acquisition which is you know which is should be very secondary to 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 him uh to what he does um but then conversely he would argue and i think this is where the clock argument would be is that if i am so limited in my budget i want to have oversight of who we buy because i don't want to waste any part of my budget on cavallo fabio cavallo he's a great player but how, he doesn't help me. So mm. while if you're going to be restrictive in the budget you give me, I want more power over who I choose. Um, so I think that's definitely been the circular dynamic. I also think he was tainted. Sorry. Um, he carried the trauma of having uh, buy and steal all of Dortmund's players. So I think there's definite element. I think we can't get away from the fact that he was very adamant that he didn't want to lose his players uh, this time around. So this is why the loyalty kind of debate comes in. But I mean, it's sort of natural, right? You basically went through your one very successful period in your, in your managerial career where it was picked apart by your rivals and you were unable to sustain a team so then you go somewhere where you have that capacity to do that and then you go the other way and you basically make sure you keep hold of them so i think that again i think i think that was reactionary i think if he if you could 
if you asked him the question in five years time was did you hold on to some hold on to them a little bit too long were you a bit loyal i think he'd say yes obviously he can't do that now because it would undermine where he is so i think yeah so i think i think again mo you probably you probably have heard um about about the potential of going back to a STEMI similar model to what we had prior to um, prior to Klopp being given free reins, and I think that would probably be the best for all parties, including Klopp himself. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I do think that um, there's certainly flaws to moving more power to to Klopp. Um, though clearly. Um, his, his strengths are very much in the coaching side. Um, he, even with players that he has um, identified during his time, you know, go, going right the way back to um, Gotza, um, you know, he was very keen on bringing him to the club and uh, that deal didn't happen. And we instead shifted to, um, I think it was Salah. Mane. I think, no, it was, was Mane. Mane. Yeah, it was right, Sadio okay. Mane. Because it was Brunt and Salah. I think it was oh, the yes, following sorry, year. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Um, and, and again, in, in both cases, um, it, it was the players that perhaps um, either the analytics guys, you know, um, champion more than the manager did. Um, and even more recently with Mason Mount, you know, again, by all reports, I don't know how accurate this is. Um, we, we heard that Mason Mount was a favourite of both Klopp and Linders. And clearly that didn't, Deal didn't materialise once um, the financials um, became um, unpalatable, and we then moved elsewhere. And ultimately, I think it was um, Sobis Lie that uh, we, we ultimately signed instead. And, and that deal seems to have been certainly based on the very early stage of this season, um, a, a very smart and astute one. Um, but the, the point being, um, I, I, I'm not massively convinced that um completely cutting out the uh the views of the an- analytics people was the best and i think that is a contributing factor behind a number of departures on that front but if there has been a recognition within the club and even we clop himself that perhaps they did bring and do add value and maybe he recognizes that trying to do too much isn't um, great in terms of his his time for coaching and managing the squad that he has, um, then that perhaps is a positive step. And you know, if we can move back to that form of uh, model that seemed to be quite successful, then I, I think that would be a positive step. Um, so you know, for those that see um, some of Liverpool's more recent woes of the last twelve months have been a very binary thing where. They look to point at just the owners. Um, I, I don't subscribe to that personally. I, th- I think that the manager um, has to hold his hands up and perhaps he, he, he to some extent, has. Um, but the, the point being, we need to look forward and look ahead. And I think that you know, there has been you know, some positive movements, um, not only in terms of incomings, but also with outgoings. And hopefully we can build on that. You know, Hopefully there will be at least one deal to be um, uh, done in in the January window, and then hopefully we can build upon that, um, possibly with funds, significant funds from the sale of um, Salah next summer, and hopefully not in the next three or four days. Um, and and those funds can be used very smartly 
um, to uh, bring in several players that can really um, turn this into one of the most complete squads we've we've seen in our lifetimes. So um, potentially exciting times, um, and uh, you know, lot, lots to be enthused about. Um, though, like uh, like you said earlier, right at the outset, uh, his army, I, I was a little bit disappointed with some of the business that I felt we should have done but didn't do. Um, but you know, we, we need to nonetheless. Um, uh, hope that uh, we, we get lucky with injuries and build up some momentum, um, and then who knows where that can take us. But, uh... Absolutely, I think I think Liverpool as a football institution, we're very good at riding waves. So yeah. if there is a um, if we do get the wind the, the wind behind us, I think you know we can do something pretty spectacular this season. Um, but we, yeah, I guess that's my concern always is that we, I think a lot of times it feels like, uh, at the beginning of every season, uh, we start the season with, we need a bit of luck. And I'd like a couple of seasons where we're not saying that, you know, we do have some strength in depth. So maybe, maybe with the Salah funds going forward mm. with some, um, yeah, with the, with the structure back in place, um, we, yeah, we, uh, that's where we take off. Because fundamentally, I mean, look, you can do a lot with 200 million if you've got whatever it is that we get from Salah plus whatever next year's budget is. That's a lot of money to basically um, move around given how young our squad is looking at the present. You know, we've got a couple of, we've got a very exciting times. I mean, I was, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm very, very hopeful that this is the beginning of something, um, something very, very positive. Um, for Liverpool football club. Indeed, absolutely. Well, Nizami, um, thank you. It's been an epic one. And, uh, yeah, really enjoyed um, this very in-depth discussion looking at um, the FSG model when it comes to uh, recruitment and um, all associated matters. Um, so I really do appreciate the time that you've given um, me and all of our listeners and uh for those um, who'd like to, um, you know, uh, get more of your views, where where can they find you on uh, social media? Yeah, I'm on uh, Nizami seven eight six on Twitter. Excellent. I think that's the only. Yeah, I think that's the only um, social media I'm on actually. Right, right, excellent. So do make sure you give Nizami a follow, uh, listeners, and uh, I hope to be back in the next several weeks. Um, to look at um, some of the uh, changes that are being implemented um, by UEFA um, in in terms of uh, the successor rules to financial fair play and what that may mean, not only for Liverpool Football Club, but also for um, other rival clubs as well. Um, so uh, that, that should certainly be an interesting one um, when we kind of take a deep dive into that subject. Um, but until next time, up the reds. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index 
and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.